2 Timothy 2.15, Paul tells Timothy, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Today's episode is about how to rightly handle God's word. Welcome to Doctrine for Doxology. Before we get going, a few ways you can connect with me. You can email me at doctrine4, that's the number four, doctrine4doxology at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. And then you can also follow me on Instagram at the Real Bear Martin. So uh, we, we've been kind of building on these uh, these doctrines of the Bible, and, and we're, we're going to get into specific doctrines pretty soon, but we're just kind of laying some groundwork here. So the first episode was kind of explaining, you know, why doctrine for doxology, doctrine would be truth statements, truth from the, and this is, these are biblical doctrines. So this is truth from the Bible about God. We're told to worship God in spirit and in truth. And so in order to properly worship God, we first need to know the truth about God. We need to know these doctrines, these biblical doctrines, and then that will affect our doxology, our praise and worship of God, and in a more general sense, our, our daily life. And so that's the, the purpose here. Now, the only way we know about God is through revelation. We cannot use our own uh, logic, our own reasoning, uh, the, the, our own senses and, and things like that to, to know God fully. God has to reveal himself to us. Now, once we have God's revelation, we certainly use things like logic and, and uh, the scientific method and, and our, our sense perceptions, things like that. We use that, but we can't start with those and reason up to God. God has to reveal himself to us. Now, the only extant revelation from God, the, the only way we can know God today in 2023 is through the Bible. And so last week we talked about the authority of the Bible and and why the Bible is our is the ultimate authority for how we know God. And then today is about when we look at the Bible, you know, now we've we've established okay, the Bible is our authority. Now I want us to read the Bible and study it and and how do we get these doctrines from the Bible and how can we know that we are interpreting the Bible correctly. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, an opening few verses just to kind of get us started. This is Acts 17, 1 through 3. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they, that is Paul and Silas, came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ." Now, first off, Jesus is the Christ. That word Christ is not Jesus' last name. That is the same word for Messiah. It means anointed one. And so in the Old Testament, there is a promised Messiah, and that promised Messiah is Jesus. And so what Paul is doing is he's going into the synagogues. Synagogues would be these Jewish centers of worship. Not just in Jerusalem, but throughout the the known world, these these uh, Jews would congregate at the synagogues. And so, when Paul went to these different cities, he would go into the synagogue, 
and and he would teach from the Old Testament and show them from the Old Testament that Jesus is this promised Messiah. And so that's what Paul is doing. A, a key thing here, though, is Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So the Jewish old the Old Testament would be what Paul is using. The New Testament, of course, is being written as these things were were happening. But Paul is reasoning uh, with them from the scriptures. He didn't just go in there and make philosophical arguments. He reasoned from the scriptures, and so that's that's our encouragement. That's what we do when we share the gospel. We we are making arguments from the Bible. Um, and and we you know so we need to know these truths from scripture. It it has to start with scripture. If you just abandon uh, the Bible and try to uh, teach somebody, lead somebody into being a Christian, that is a, <laughs> that's the wrong way to go about it. You can't just say okay, let's put the Bible aside and use our philosophy, our reasoning, or whatever, and try to come up with. God. No. It the reason we know about God is because of the Bible. And so we reason from the scriptures. And so again, today is about how do we do that properly. Now, a an excellent resource on this topic is called Knowing Scripture by R.C. Sproul. So that's a great book if you're interested in in more of this. And and if you do get that book and read it, you will recognize a lot of the concepts that I'm talking about today. Uh, certainly, I, I quote from um, R.C. Sproul several times in this. He, he just does a great job of bringing some of these concepts down to a, an average reader's level. And, um, and it's very, very practical book. So that's called Knowing Scripture by R.C. Sproul. Now, the first concept that I want to talk about is this idea of subjective versus objective meanings of Scripture. And so let me define those, those terms here, subjective versus objective. Subjective would, be, would include like personal opinion, whereas objective, there's a standard outside of your opinion. And so in in my business world, I'm an eye doctor, and so we have subjective tests and, and exam parts, and then we have objective testing. And so an example of that would be some people can read 2020 on the eye chart, and that standard is outside of their opinion. And so it's simply look at the chart, read the lowest letters that you can read, okay? And that that is an objective measurement because that eye chart is the same for everybody. And so that the standard is not that person's opinion, it is it is based on a a a standard that's that's outside of themselves, which is the eye chart. So the objective reading may be 2020. But subjectively, this involves personal opinion. Some people subjectively are they they are not happy with their vision. So sometimes we have people that can technically objectively read 2020 on the eye chart, but they're still not happy with their vision. And that can be from from lots of different things, cataracts, things like that. And and so some people objectively are 
2040, which would be you know significantly worse than 2020, but subjectively they're happy. And so that that's that would be the difference between subjective and objective. All right. Now, the classic Bible study question um, would be, what does this verse mean to you? So you you know, some people get together, they read a passage, and then the, the leader says, Now, Susie, what does this verse mean to you? Now, here's the thing. A subjective interpretation is is not allowed. There there is one interpretation of scripture, and it's not everybody's personal opinion on what this Bible verse means is not valid. Okay, there is one specific interpretation that is true and right, and then the subjective part would be the the personal application of that verse. And so in the in the book Knowing Scripture by RC Sproul he says this talking about studying the Bible. He says, quote, "What we are doing is seeking to understand what the word says in its context before we go about the equally necessary task of applying it to ourselves. A particular statement may have numerous possible personal applications, but it can only have one correct meaning." So every you know this this idea of well that's your interpretation that is that's not valid um if if someone has a different interpretation then one of you is wrong there's only one correct interpretation we can't just all interpret the bible however we want and everybody's is valid no there's one correct objective interpretation and then the, there there may be lots of different personal applications to that verse but there's only one true valid interpretation, okay? Now, kind of along those lines of, of subjective and, and objective are is the idea of exegesis versus eisegesis. So exegesis, the, the first part of that word, ex, means out of. So exegesis is to guide out of or, or to, to bring out of, all right? This, this word, this Greek word where we get this concept is shown a couple times in the Bible, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side he has, and here's that word, made him known. He has made him known. He has exegeted God. And this is talking about how uh, Jesus became flesh, and Jesus has shown us the Father, okay? And so he has made him known. He, he, has, he has exegeted the Father. Um, another verse, Acts 21, 19, after greeting them, he related one by one, the things that are that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry, all right? He related one by one these things. So he is he is bringing out these things. He's, he's relating these things that God has done. In Luke 24, 35, this is the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. If you remember, they're, they're leaving Jerusalem, and Christ has been crucified, and then he's been proclaimed to be resurrected, and they're walking back, and Jesus comes up, and they don't recognize him until after he walks through Moses and the prophets and breaks bread with them, and then they recognize Jesus. And so the, then the disciples go back into Jerusalem, and it says, Luke 24, 35, then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. That that word told there is this this same word for for exegesis. They they explained what had happened, okay? And so R.C. Sproul says to exegete scripture is to get out of the words the meaning that is there, no more and no less. So you are going to the Bible with exegesis 
You are looking at the Bible, and you are bringing these concepts out of the Bible, okay? It, it has to start with Scripture, and, and you everything you, you take out of it is, is truly coming out of Scripture, okay? Now, we contrast that to eisegesis. So, ex means out of, ice means into. And so, this is the idea of putting things into Scripture that aren't truly there. Okay, so this is this is coming to scripture already with a preconceived idea, and then looking to try to insert it into scripture when it's not actually teaching that. Okay, um, I've I've done some episodes on these, especially in Roman Catholicism. So um, when I, when I one of the first things that popped in my mind was this passage that Roman Catholics try to use to justify a belief in purgatory. Okay, and so uh, Matthew 5, 25 through 26, Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. All right, so again, Roman Catholics use this verse to try to say, well, see there, you never get out until you've paid the last penny. So therefore, if you have temporal punishments that you need to pay for, you, you're going to be put in prison or purgatory until you have paid the last penny, okay? And so they, they use that, that verse to, to try to justify that. Now, they, they also have to read into this uh, the idea that all the, these things that are attached to purgatory, you have venial versus mortal sins, uh, all of these things are, are, are concepts that are shoved into Scripture. They are not derived out of Scripture. And so I would say that, that here, trying to say that this verse is supporting purgatory is eisegesis, <clears throat> okay? Now, the next thing I want to talk about is, is a, a word called hermeneutics. So in Greek mythology, Hermes was the messenger of the gods. He, he was responsible for interpreting the will of the gods. And so this is where we get this word hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science of biblical interpretation, and its purpose is to establish guidelines and rules for interpretation. Okay, so, so hermeneutics would, would be these uh, these guidelines that when you get, come to Scripture, you have this hermeneutical mindset. You're you're saying, okay, here's here's the method I'm going to use to to put some guardrails up to that way I can accurately interpret Scripture. Okay, now there's many different hermeneutics, and so I don't have time to get into all of them. Certainly, uh, some people come to the Bible with her a hermeneutic that is very different from how I would approach it. So so someone who has come to the Bible with an extremely liberal uh, view of the Bible, uh, a, a, a an atheist who is coming to the Bible and trying to you know get some sort of interpretation, they're going to come to the Bible with a different hermeneutic than I would. Okay, and so what I'm talking about now are some basic concepts in, we'll just say, conservative Christianity in how to interpret the Bible. This would be people that that are that believe that the Bible is God's word, that it's inerrant, that it's infallible, uh, that that it's inspired by God. Every word is inspired. The, the the things that I talked about a lot last week. Okay, so all of all of these things kind of go together. Um, the first assumption that we have to make when we come to interpreting the Bible is that we assume that the Bible is 
clear. It's called the perspicuity of Scripture or the clarity of Scripture. Now, not every single passage in the Bible is crystal clear. There's certainly some difficult things in the Bible. God is He's outside of time and space, and we we cannot fully wrap our head around God and even the way that God chooses to to act. Sometimes we we can't wrap our head around all of that. But the what the perspicuity of Scripture means, the clarity of Scripture, is that its basic message is clear to to the reader. Okay, um, Sproul says the Bible is basically clear and lucid. It is simple enough for any literate person to understand its basic message. And and this is so true. If Scripture is God's revelation, if it's God's purpose to reveal Himself to mankind in Scripture, then of course He's going to make it understandable. Some people accuse many parts of the Bible of being primitive, and they and they mock the Bible because of that. Um, you know, the the gospel message is simple. That we're told in the Bible that that people believe the the gospel message. It, it's foolishness to them. It's it's so simple. It's so primitive. Uh, a, a little child can understand the story of Adam and Eve and the the sacrificial system in the Old Testament and Jesus as the substitution for our sins on the cross. So it, the the basic message, the basic gospel message, is extremely easy to understand. And and again, even a child can understand it. So scripture is clear in its basic message. Scripture is is also not esoteric. Esoteric means intended for or likely to be understood by only a small number of people with a specialized knowledge or interest. Okay, so it's not scripture is not esoteric. It, it's not this high-minded mystical language that nobody knows what is is going on. Scripture is again the majority of scripture is a very plain message, and and the the somebody with basic reading comprehension skills can understand it. Okay, um, now when when we think about the clarity of scripture, Alistair Begg, this is one of my favorite quotes about the Bible. He says, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And so anytime you are uh, bogged down maybe with with some complicated things in Scripture, just remember that quote, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. So maybe you need to, to step back and refocus on on what's what's the main issues. What is God teaching you in this passage? Okay? So that's that's hermeneutics and the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture. Now, as far as hermeneutical principles, the the main one, the probably the the most important, um, is called the analogy of faith, and this is the idea that Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture is the best interpreter of itself. And it's, again, based on the assumption that Scripture is God-breathed, it's inerrant, it's an ultimate authority. And so if that's all true, then then certainly Scripture is the best interpreter of itself. Sproul, in, in Knowing Scripture, again, says, "...no part of Scripture can be interpreted in such a way as to render it in conflict with what is clearly taught elsewhere in Scripture." All right, and so so as you're studying the Bible, if you come across a verse, and the way you're interpreting that verse is a clear contradiction 
to a different verse in the Bible that's that's clear, then you've you've got the wrong interpretation. And so that that's a this is a, a massive concept. We interpret scripture by scripture first. All right. Now, the, this concept comes from the verse I mentioned at the beginning, 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So Timothy, this, this young pastor, Paul says, as you're, as you're preaching, you, you must study scripture and be able to rightly handle the word of truth what you're saying must align with scripture and and you you've, you must be able to interpret it properly so we interpret scripture by scripture all right now associated with this 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 rule of faith that scripture interprets scripture is the idea of context and so context obviously is extremely important um, I, I, you know, I spent a lot of time, again, I, a lot of time in Roman Catholicism. So as I'm trying to think of examples, um, this one certainly came to mind of, of taking a verse out of context, okay? So John 6, verses 53 through 55. If you were to ask yourself, what is required for me to have eternal life? And then you read these verses, uh, th- this this is what you'd read, okay? So this is John 6, 53 through 55. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. So the Roman Catholic with that passage would say, Jesus cannot say it any clearer than that at all, you must truly eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus in order to have eternal life. And that's exactly what happens at Catholic Mass. The the bread and the wine, uh, through the doctrine, the, the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, uh, this is where the bread and the wine are turned into Christ's body and blood. And so the the bread, they, they use this philosophical concept of accidents and substance. The accidents, uh, everything has accidents and substance. So the accidents would be the, the color of the bread and wine, the taste, the texture, all of that, the accidents remain the same. It, so it, when you put the communion bread at mass in your mouth and chew it, it tastes like bread. But but the substance is what it truly is. And Catholics are saying that the substance of that bread and wine is truly Jesus' flesh and, and blood. And so that's the doctrine of transubstantiation. Now, the again, this accidents and substance concept is based on philosophical concepts that are not found in Scripture anywhere. But that's how they, they reason that, because they are trying to... to or they're interpreting this verse extremely literal and then trying to be consistent with themselves on that. Now, I do not believe that this verse should be interpreted that way, and the reason is context. So if we ask the question, who has eternal life, just a few verses early, we're told in the verses I read that you have to drink the blood and eat the flesh of Jesus in order to have eternal life. But just a few verses earlier, Jesus in John 6, 47 says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. 
in in John 5, a, a chapter earlier, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In John 4, 13 through 14, this is Jesus talking to the woman at the well. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Is Jesus here talking about physical water? No, not at all. It, this is spiritual water. So Jesus is using physical descriptions to talk about something spiritual. And so to to eat the flesh of Jesus and to drink his blood, this is spiritual language. This this is a uh Jesus is is comparing that to believing in him. And so the it's it's through belief that we have eternal life. We and again I've I've given you several examples here in John and just walking back through the Gospel of John. A chapter earlier than the woman at the well, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Okay, so it is belief throughout the Gospel of John. The context of the Gospel of John is so that we may believe. John gives us these signs so that we may believe. It's belief that gives us eternal life. And he and Jesus in teaching. He uses water for the woman at the well. He uses the the bread and and um, he, he uses the the bread in feeding the five thousand. They're asking for bread. He says, "I am the bread of life." So he's using all these symbols to talk about believing in him. In John seventeen three, Jesus says, "And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent." So you've got to know who God is and and who Jesus is and believe. In Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. So that that is what is Jesus is talking about. That's how you have eternal life, not because you literally, you know, ate uh, bread and wine where the substance is Christ's flesh and the and and blood. Okay, now that that would be a, an example of taking a, a passage out of context. All right. The next thing that we, the next hermeneutical principle. So we talked about the analogy of faith. We want to interpret scripture by scripture. We want to keep things. In, we want to think about the context of the verse. Um, by the way, with, with context, there, there's sort of a hierarchy there, and so you you want to look at the immediate context around the passage you're studying. From there, you you want to broaden that a little bit and maybe maybe look at the whole like like for instance the Gospel of John. Look throughout the Gospel of John. Are there some overlying themes? The context of that uh, specific book of the Bible. Okay, then you may want to look at other if if there's other books of the Bible written by the same author. Do they use similar concepts? We you know you can use again. You're using scripture to interpret scripture, and then from there we look at the the Bible as a whole. And so there's there's different ways of thinking about context, and so it starts right around the verse you're interested in and expands outward. Okay, uh, one example would be flesh in the Bible. 
sometimes flesh is a good thing. So in Ezekiel 36, we're told that the Holy Spirit will take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh when, when we're a believer. Uh, but but in the New Testament, Paul says we we're we're wrestling against the flesh. Flesh is is thought of or is used to describe the sinful man. And so it, again, context is is very important in how we interpret these these words. Okay, um, so that's that's the analogy of faith and context. The next one with our hermeneutical method is we want to use a grammatical historical approach to scripture. So grammar and history, the the cultural and and historical context of what's happening is very important when we study the Bible. And so in fourth grade, when you're diagramming sentences, and this is the noun, this or or, excuse me, this is the subject, this is the verb, this is the direct object, that you may be thinking, when am I ever going to use this? Well, you're going to use that for the glory of God, because grammar matters when you're studying the Bible. And and so it matters certainly in English when, when we're reading the English Bible, but it, it matters also when scholars are looking at the Greek language. L- let me give you one example of when grammar make is a is a big deal. And that would be John 1 1. So I'm gonna not pick on Catholics this time. So this would be Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, John 1 1 in the ESV says, In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we're probably very familiar with that verse. Jehovah's Witnesses translate that last part, and the Word was a God, like like a little g God. The reason they do that is because in the Greek, that last word, God, does not have an article. The An article would be something with an article, like I'm looking at, um, the computer in front of me. The is the article, and so it's there's the computer or a or like a computer. Okay, so that's why they're translating at translating it as a god, and the word was a god because there's not this specific article, uh, the god, in attached to that in the Greek. All right, so if I was going to give like a rough reading of John 1.1 in Greek, it would be, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with the God, so that that one has the article there, and then the last one was, and the Word was, and, and we'll say a God, because there's there's not an article there, okay? So that's the Jehovah's Witness argument, that there's not an article attached to God, and so therefore it is a God. And of course, this is consistent with their own theology that Jesus is not, uh, they, they reject the Trinity, Jesus is not the second person of the Trinity. He's not eternal. Jesus is the first and greatest of God's creation. So Jesus is a created being, not not eternal creator of all things. He he basically they believe that God the Father, um, or we'll, we'll just say Jehovah, created Jesus, and then through Jesus created everything else. Okay, um, so that that's why they translate that verse that way because it's missing the article. Now. In Greek grammar, there is a Greek rule called Colwell's rule. And so when when studying how the Greek language is, is used, this Colwell's rule is very important in, in interpreting passages like this. And so not to get, you know, I'll just kind of throw that out there. Let me spell it for you just in case you want to look it up. It's C-O-L-W-E-L-L and then apostrophe S, Colwell's rule. 
And, and this explains why we translate it, and the word was God, not a God, okay? Now, you don't have to know anything about the Greek language other than th- this argument here. So let me give you this. Mark 2.28 says this, So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So when we're comparing these two verses, John 1.1 1, 1 and Mark 2.28, that phrase, and the word was God, it's it's the same structure, it's the same grammatical structure as Mark 2.28 when it says, the Son of Man is Lord. So the word was God, the Son of Man is Lord, okay? Now, was and is, it's, it's the same verb, just different tense. And so it's it's the grammatically the 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 Greek structure is exactly the same exactly the same that is very important. And so here's here's what you want to ask your Jehovah's Witness friend. Why does your Jehovah's Witness translation of the Bible translate Mark 2:28 as Lord and not a Lord? See, in even in the Jehovah's Witness translation it says the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. It does not say the Son of Man is a Lord of the Sabbath, but Lord does not have the article. So why did they translate it the that way? Why did why is it Lord and not a Lord? The reason is Colwell's rule. Because even Jehovah's Witness Greek scholars, when they're translating it and they're not thinking about this this theological grid in their mind of, of Jehovah's Witness theology, they translate it the way that it's supposed to be, according to the grammatical rules of the Greek language. And so it's only when their theology is in, is in check that they translate it as a god and say, oh, it's because the article is missing, okay? Now, that is a, you know, you may not have been interested in that at all, but that was just an example of me trying to show you that grammar matters. And so it's even if you just know basic grammar, it's important. And so we're told to to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so when we think about loving the Lord with all of our mind and and academics, we, we, again, everything that we do is for the glory of God and to, to learn about God and to know Him better. And so even grammar rules like this that you may consider boring are extremely important when we think about properly interpreting the Bible. And so a brush up on your, uh, on your grammar skills. <laughs> All right. Now, just to, to solidify this Jehovah's Witness argument on, um, on John 1.1 and it not having an article, there's other... Uh, word the the word for God here is theos. There's other uses of theos in the first eighteen verses of John of the Gospel of John, where God does not have an article, but it is nonsense to translate it uh, a God. Okay, so John one six, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Okay. It was not. It's not. There was a man sent from a God whose name was John. Jehovah's Witnesses would never put that. John one twelve. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, not a God. Okay, but there's no article there. But we know that it is God, not a God. 
John 1.13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Okay? So just because a, a Greek word does not have an article in front of it does not mean that it's a God. Okay? Sometimes it is translated as uh, God or the God. Okay? Now, the I mentioned that this is the grammatical, historical, hermeneutical approach. Okay? And so history is extremely important. And just to stay in the Gospel of John, there are so many things in the Gospel of John that will become even more clear when you understand the historical and cultural setting um, of of Jews in that time. And so um, so that that also comes into play when we're interpreting scripture. Uh, one example, um, Jim Young, one of my friends and uh, just a man that I that I look up to a lot, he preached a sermon recently at our church and he was explaining some of this uh, historical, cultural, context in the Gospel of John, um, talking about Jesus going away to prepare a place for us. And in that culture, the when, when a man and woman were engaged, the husband went and literally added on an addition to his father's house. And the father, whenever the whenever that was complete, it was the father's decision, and then he would tell the son to go get his bride. And so we we see this language when Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's going to prepare a place, and then he's going to come back for them. He, Jesus is coming back for his bride, the church. And so this, when we when we understand a little bit of this historical uh, context here, it it enriches the passage and it helps us better understand what Jesus is is talking about there. So the grammatical, historical, hermeneutic is extremely important because uh, we we want to accurately interpret Scripture, and so uh, those things certainly help. Now, I'm going to end this episode right there. This will this will actually be a two-parter because we were, th- this is Sunday that I'm recording this, and in class today, we only got this far before time ran out. And so I want to try to keep this podcast right in line with with how uh, how class is going each week at church where I'm teaching, so um, so we'll we'll end it right there. But let me give you some some closing uh, a closing verse. Um, and before I do that, the the next week we'll be talking about the literal interpretation of scripture and and what do we mean by that. Um, also, you know, looking at allegory and typology in scripture and how how we how we examine those things. And then I'll talk a little bit about. Okay, we yeah, as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit, we have Scripture. Why are there disagreements in interpretation? If, if the Holy Spirit's the one who's supposed to show us the truth of Scripture, why do Christians, godly men and women who, who believe that Scripture is inerrant and is their ultimate authority, why do they disagree on interpretation? So some thoughts on that as well next week. So that's where we'll end it there. Here's our closing verse. This is Psalm 119, 9 through 16. Now, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, and it is dedicated to Scripture and and how lovely, how powerful, how just all the things, uh, basically every good thing you could say about Scripture um, it's probably somewhere found in Psalm 119. And so uh, read read that chapter with that mindset. But I'll just read verses 9 through 16. So the, the psalmist writes, How can a young man keep his way pure? 
by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Thank you.